One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the war and dig into the announcement from Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, who has called on the EU to ban oil imports from Russia. We also have an exclusive interview with Anton Timoshenko. Anton's a stand-up comedian. Last week, he went viral after staging a comedy show in a bomb shelter in Kyiv. We talk about his life in the war, how he uses humour as a weapon, and where he finds the jokes in the conflict. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 4th of May, day 70. And today I'm joined by Francis Sternley, Assistant Comment Editor, and Louise Moon, Business Features Editor. Dominic Nichols is accompanying Defence Secretary Ben Wallace on a trip to Finland. He'll be back tomorrow. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from the front lines. Yes, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's been an eventful 24 hours. Um, in terms of the I suppose big top line story, it will be relating to the European Union's announcements made um, this morning um, regarding oil and gas embargoes. But we'll cover that in proper detail with Louise very shortly. Um, but for the in terms of other stories, we've spoken many times on this podcast about Mariupol, the city of Mariupol, which Putin claimed after many weeks to have uh, finally uh, fallen um, last week uh, has now we've we were very concerned that there were still many hundreds of people left trapped in that city. Um, the story today is that 156 people who were in the steel plant there um, in hiding in the tunnels um, are now um, ha- have been safely evacuated. Um, President Zelensky has said that they are women and children and have been in the shelters for more than two months. And he said that these people are completely safe and they will get the help that they need. Um, I think the significance of this is obviously on the one hand, the humanitarian, that these people would have been going through incredible, um, unimaginable suffering in those tunnels. Um, whilst the Russians have been bombarding them, you can imagine um, very little food, very little water for, as I say, two months. But I think the, the other element of this and the reason that this is, I think, significant in terms and why President Zelensky was making um, remarks yesterday about it in his evening address um that it shows that Mariupol has not yet completely fallen, um, that there are still people who are and, and soldiers who are holding out there. And it just underlines the fact that, uh, that, that, that despite what the Russian propaganda machine has been saying, that the war in Mariupol rumbles on and that this is not territory that, that, that the Russians have completely taken, despite what the Kremlin may be saying. Thanks, Francis. Um, would you comment as well also on uh, this um, diplomatic, I mean, it's far, far bigger than a spat, but between Russia and Israel? Um, a spokeswoman for Russia's foreign ministry today claimed that Israeli mercenaries were fighting alongside the far-right Azov regiment in Ukraine. Um, this, this, this has rumbled on for a few days now. What's the significance of this? 
Well, in essence, one of the propaganda arguments that the Kremlin have been pushing since the beginning of this conflict is that this is a liberational war in an attempt to uh, defeat the far right Nazis, to quote um, to vote Putin himself, who have taken over large parts of Ukraine. Um, drug addled Nazis, I believe, was the term that he used um, to describe these people. Now, it's it is true to say that there are um, far right elements within Ukraine, the Azov Battalion being one of them that will use um, Nazi insignia, etc. Um, but the I think the reason that that this can be it's being used as a tool to justify the invasion when in fact one could argue that there are actually far larger numbers is a percentage of the population say of of, of people we would we would define uh, as far right in in many other european nations um perhaps one could even say germany and france so it is an excuse for this war although in that in no way um un, uh, is is meant to um undermine the significance of the fact that there are any nazis um at all which there clearly are, are people who are sympathetic to that worldview um in ukraine um but yes as you say this has caused a, a diplomatic um, row because as things um, escalated yesterday, um, this spokesperson claimed that the Israelis, the the, the the Israeli mercenaries, were fighting alongside this uh, far right um, regiment in Ukraine, and uh, it got so bad that. Um, um, Sergei Lazarov, the foreign minister for the Kremlin, suggested that Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood, um, and that you know this effectively shouldn't come as as a as a great surprise. I mean, obviously, it's it's appalling incendiary rhetoric um, and one that Israel, that Israel has condemned in the strongest possible terms. But I don't think we should be surprised, um, given the nature of the propaganda that the Kremlin has been now putting out since the beginning of this war, where truth is is willing to be sacrificed for any perceived gain. And clearly, um, as situations become increasingly desperate from the Russian perspective, they are continuing to parrot this line about um, Nazis in Ukraine and that they are doing the right thing um, in, in attempting to to, uh, to liberate the country from, from these individuals. Um, but as we can say very comfortably from analysing this, you know, since the conflict began, um, this is not a significant threat in Ukraine um, in the way that the propaganda machine is, is, is seeming to make it out to be. Um, and, and we should be sensitive to that. Just a couple of other things I think we should touch upon before bringing in Louise. Um, Russians claim that they've hit some electrical substations in Lviv, and they also claim to have attacked uh, and damaged railway stations um, that they say are being used by the Ukrainians to transport weapons from NATO. Um, what can we say about these claims? Well, it's, it, there are claims at this stage, although um, quite fair, it would appear that there may be, well be some truth to them. Of course, one of the major challenges from the Russian military perspective has been to try and um, uh, weaken the support that NATO has provided. They've tried to do that diplomatically by dividing the West, which has obviously failed. Um, but they've also been trying to do that militarily by, as I say, stopping railway lines, um, attacking centres um, very near the Polish border at the beginning of the conflict where um, foreign soldiers' munitions was gathering. So I think we can. it's fair to say that wouldn't be surprising if these claims um, happen to be true. Um, the other uh, thing that's just worth commenting on here is that there continue to be Russian forces that are building up around as. Excuse me, azizium, um, but which is probably horrifically pronounced, which I apologise. Um, but essentially, it speaks to the broader picture on the front line um, that Russia has struggled and is continuing to struggle to properly and adequately resource um, its soldiers um, across the the whole front um, in in those in in the Donbass. Um, they are finding it very challenging to sustain the the war effort and. We've talked a lot about May the 9th being this sort of key date for which the Kremlin wants to be able to claim certain victories in that region. And looking at analysts thinking about the current situation, um, etc., they think it's very unlikely, really, that Russia are going to be able to to claim to have, have, have liberated the Donbass or to have, have made any other major significant gains um, in that time, at least not by conventional means of warfare. Um, 
there's been some interesting intelligence that's come out in the last 24 hours of of certain um, Russian defectors leaving the or former soldiers, former conscripts leaving the front line and um, and, and have been interviewed as to just the poor quality of of, of the weaponry um, tanks that don't work, guns that don't work, and they're just not willing to to fight um, in those circumstances. And it's leading supposedly to um, greater uh, reluctance on the part of Russian forces to to essentially be engaging in the kind of warfare, the kind of aggressive strategy that um, they did at the beginning of the war, which obviously had such a devastating effects. So part of it is an issue around morale, I think, but part of it also is this issue around um, the actual supplies that the Russian Russians have, um, which, as I say, is making it increasingly difficult to to actually be able to be capable of 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 launching these kind of initiatives that they were able to do so um, early on in the war. That said. Um, we spoke several times on this podcast around this issue around attrition rates. Um, the attrition rates were believed to be incredibly high, around 20%, maybe even 30% in the Russian um, army in terms of the number of casualties, the, 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 the losses, etc. And we were saying about how unsustainable that would be. That would put it on par of defeats um, um, suffered by the British at the Battle of the Somme, for instance, which, which um, you know, severely hampered um, their operational capacity for months afterwards. Um, so, uh, but it does appear that those attrition rates are now falling as a consequence of this this um, shift in strategy to less aggressive strategy, um, uh, less aggressive tactics, excuse me. Um, and as if that is true, then I think that, that we can expect this conflict to um, not sort of peter out in one big um, final um, battle, but for it to be a long, extended, attritional conflict um, as the one perhaps we we've, um, uh, were not anticipating quite in the same way a few weeks ago, where we were talking about that there may well be a complete collapse in, in, in late May, early June. Um, it now would appear that it's going to be a long summer um, uh, of, of, of attritional warfare. And of course, that will have, again, significant geopolitical um, ramifications, but one that I would say that would still favour militarily at least the Ukrainians because every day that passes more and more pressure diplomatically financially and militarily is being put on the Russian army but I'll pause there. Thank you very much Francis. Uh, Louise Moon can we bring you in here let's let's dig into this news that uh, the European Union's leader has called on the bloc to ban oil imports from Russia this is the sixth package of sanctions targeting Moscow for its war. Uh, What's happening and what's the time frame for this? Hi, David. Um, Yes. So obviously on on this podcast, we've spoken quite a bit previously about um, sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, whether that's financial or consumer sanctions or or corporate boycotts, consumer boycotts. But one thing that the that Europe um, has steered quite clear from so far is um, energy sanctions because of their dependence on Russia. So the US and the UK, as we've mentioned before, have already banned Russian oil imports. but now, as of this morning, um, the EU has proposed this as well. So Ursula von der Leyen um, outlined the sixth round of sanctions against Putin. And these um, are now including energy. So the EU is preparing to roll out a phase ban on crude oil over the next six months um, and then on refined products by the end of the year. Um, so this, I mean, this will have, if this is done properly and if this is done as a as a block, um, then this will cut the Kremlin off from a market that takes 70% of its exports. So it is very hard to replace. Um, and von der Leyen has admitted that, that it won't be easy. Um, one, because, because there is such a big reliance on Russia for energy, for oil. And so weaning off this comes at, one, it comes at a cost, um, but it also comes at huge logistical changes to get other sources of energy, both domestically um, ramping up supplies or or getting that from elsewhere. But also um, it won't be easy because the bloc isn't united in this decision. So there are some divisions already. So this morning, um, both Hungary and Slovakia have said that they oppose sanctions. Um, they So they, they've been granted until 2023 to cut off their oil imports, which is a year longer than the other countries within the bloc. Um, but because they're both so heavily reliant on Russian energy, um, they obviously aren't uh, exceedingly enthusiastic about, about these sanctions. Um, the Hungarian government this morning has said that this threatens the country's energy security and they have um, huge concerns about these bans. Um, 
yeah, so so that's that's the kind of general gist of what's going on in terms of how this has impacted oil. Um, the prices has gone up even further this morning. So uh, at one point this morning, it was up about 2.6% over $100 a barrel. Um, and just kind of moving on from just the EU. So as part of this ban, um, von der Leyen has also said that the EU is looking at targeting the ability by the Kremlin to sell, to sell their products everywhere globally. So not only are they going for uh, bans of exports to the EU, but but um, Russia's ability to, to extend that globally. So they would do that by banning EU vessels and companies from providing services linked to transporting Russian oil globally. So banning them to be able to do that. So that would include insurance, um, technical assistance, financing, brokering of those vessels um, to to consumers globally. So that's um, the updates and how that stands this morning. Thanks. So just to be clear, Louise, so that would mean that European countries, if this if this was passed, wouldn't buy oil, but equally they wouldn't allow their own, as you said, their own ships or supply lines or whatever to be used to transport the oil as well. Yes, that's how it's looking at the moment. So the um, the block is is meeting later to to discuss these plans and these proposals. Um, so I guess finalised um, decisions will come later, but that's how it stands at the moment. Um, and just on that, actually, it's, it's, it's been quite interesting. I think it was this morning and, and maybe a bit yesterday of... So uh, w- when we talk about them banning, it having a global impact, um, at the same time, this is slight tangent, but but also linked. But at the same time, other countries globally are are looking to Russia, realising their desperation that they need to be able to sell oil um, to other places, considering it's cutting off exports to Europe. Um and they're going to Russia for massive discounts. So India is one example. So it's been reported that India is pressuring Russia for steep discounts on oil purchases. They're, they're wanting to get cargoes at less than $70 a barrel. Um, and China is, is another one reportedly buying Russian oil for a lot cheaper. So the Financial Times reported that China's independent oil refineries have, so throughout the war, They've been making deals with Russian suppliers, um, but they haven't been reporting them. Whereas publicly, China as a country and its state-owned firms have halted new contracts. So while um, while it publicly is saying, no, we're not buying any more Russian oil, reportedly, its independent oil refineries are getting it, but at, at cheaper prices. Um, so so it, it all ties in together. So Russia, if this goes through later today, um, then Russia will lose it's a, a, a large chunk of its exports. It's its biggest chunk, as, as far as I'm aware, of its oil and energy exports. And then at the same time, while it might be trying to find new customers, um, they are wanting it at a cheaper price. So it's it's cutting off essentially massive amounts of financing for the Kremlin and one of the largest, or I think the largest source um, that hasn't already been been stemmed so far. If I could just jump in on China, um, I think it's, we've spoken, as I say, a lot about on this podcast about um, the Chinese position since the war began. And there were concerns very early on that they may well be poised to help Russia in the war in Ukraine, um, not least by perhaps providing military support, but particularly economic support. And of course, whilst they have not by any means, um, stop supporting Russia in relation to energy, as Louise was just talking about. I do think it's significant that China has not done what it was initially seemed primed to do. Um, it is not providing that extra economic and military aid. And it does make the likelihood of that long war scenario increasingly unlikely because you imagine as Louise was describing that the um, energy issue is going to become more and more acute long term for Russia they are not receiving that geopolitical support from one of their major allies China um, particularly not militarily which as I say would have been hugely significant and and, and, and very concerning Um, so I think it's just worth making that point that this is that that we talk a lot about what has happened and what is happening uh, on this podcast but actually just as significant because things that haven't happened the support that hasn't been provided by countries like china and and i think that the the real significance of that may be something that we work we can't measure in weeks or months but perhaps perhaps in years thanks francis before we move on um louise just a couple of questions from me i think um just can we put this 
threat in context? I mean, I mean, would an oil ban from the EU be um, fatal to the Russian economy, or is it just a very, very bad body blow? Would they, would they be able to recover if they can find new markets? Um, I mean, as you said, it depends on if they can get new markets. So, I think it was so. It was prior to the war. Russia and China did make a deal and a pipeline was started to be built between the two. Um, And there is kind of talk of them turning more in that direction to sell their oil. Um, But as it stands, pretty much all their pipelines travel towards Europe and they've really built up that market and they do rely on Europe. So, yes, in answer to your question, it would have, I mean enormous uh, ramifications financially and it will cut off as I was saying earlier their, their main source of funding at the moment and already the Russian economy is, um, is as everyone who will be listening is aware the Russian economy is um, is crumbling essentially and this as it's their last huge source of financing yeah I mean it, it would be it would be pretty pretty disastrous for them. And what does all this have to do or how does it influence the, the strength of the ruble at the moment? That's a, a question from a listener. So, th- I mean, throughout the war, that the strength of the ruble has, has been decreasing. Um, and I think we were going to touch on it later, but Russia only yesterday, just, just um, at the kind of the last minute, avoided default, which, which just shows how much of a problem it's in. I mean, the fact that, so, I mean, its currency is down, it's, it's struggling for money, essentially, um, and it's struggling to pay off its debts, which just shows how a sticky situation it, it is in. Um, but as I said, I, I think we'll go into more detail about that later. But um, basically, it's, it's in a it's in a very bad situation. And it's and it's it's needing money, it's needing funds. Um, so as Francis um, has touched upon, and, and, and as you touched upon it, I mean, it will be needing new customers, essentially, um, and and links elsewhere globally. And but just before we move on to that, can I ask, do we have a sense from the European countries about where exactly they're looking for their new energy markets? Are, are they generating it themselves? Are there, are there, are there um, obvious willing sellers to, to, to Europe at the moment? Have they been identified? Yeah, so one thing that's, that's been talked about a lot is that they are, a lot, a lot of countries um, in Europe and, and also the UK is doing this, is, is trying to ramp up its own production. So whether that be nuclear, um, some are turning more towards inverted commas, dirty energy, um, so ramping up or turning back to coal, um, delaying the, delaying uh, turning off or, or delaying the, the, the halting of, of coal produce. Um, uh, so, yeah, so ramping up domestic supply is, is one. Um, another thing that has been kind of floated, whether or not this will happen, is getting more energy from America, um, which... I mean, logistically, that that will be something that potentially comes down the line, but that has been something that's been spoken about. So I think that the key focus is domestic and trading within Europe. Um, and then America is, is also an option as well. Thanks very much, Louise. Francis, did you want to come in there? Um, I just have one point to make about the ruble, which is that um, the Russian economy has, as Louise has been saying, has been going through uh, considerable ruptions uh, since the war began, um, particularly in the early days of the war. Um, the, the, the ruble went down, but through lots of financial jiggery-pokery, um, the Kremlin managed to to strengthen the ruble um, in a way that basically restored it to its original strength prior to to the war began. But that was a short-term measure, and we are now starting to see the long-term impact of that, which is essentially a, a slow um, disintegration. But that does not necessarily equate with um, the Russian people sort of turning their back on Putin or anything like that, as we've talked about many, many times. Um, I think it's far more complicated than that. Although long-term, I think uh, when a people realise just the extent of the economic devastation wrought by a war, then that's when dictators start to worry and there can be serious upheaval, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, just one other point that I wanted to make about the European Union issue. Of course, what they've said today is very welcome. Um, some people would say, I think, that um, it's perhaps too little too late. I mean, they're not really doing um, going as far as perhaps they can on gas. They are on oil, but not on gas. And I think uh, generally, you know, we should be framing this in the context of a broader point about the European Union, which is that 
it has clearly tried to position itself since the war began as a major and and of course longer term as a major geopolitical player not only within the continent but also around the world you know this this sort of idea of of an expanded federalism a united states of europe etc this is something that is genuinely believed within the commission um now of course brexit put us through a spanner in the works um with regard to that um but i think that broadly speaking this is a yet another example of a crisis, perhaps like the um, uh, the migration crisis, the refugee crisis of 2015, where the European Union had a a, a golden moment to really show to its uh, to the many peoples of Europe why it was there. But actually, it's really been so slow getting out of the gates in terms of uh, what it could have done to support Ukraine initially. Um, think of the um, scepticism of Germany, of course, one of the major powers within the European Union. France is mishandling around Minsk, etc. Um, it's been a very, very... Um, slow and rather languid um, approach. And I would just make the comment that I think if, you know, we had truly been relying on the European Union for a response on this in the way that many uh, people within the, the European Commission would like us to, then I don't think Ukraine would have been able to put up the resistance that it has, having received the support from um, Czech Republic, from Poland, and of course, from Great Britain in terms of military support. Um, if we had been seeking, much as with the vaccine programme um, here in Britain, if we had been seeking a, a, a unified approach to this from the EU, then it is, I think, very likely that, that um, Kiev may well have fallen and this war would have taken a very, very different shape. So unfortunately, as ever, with a very large bureaucracy on the size of the European Union, it is can be effective, but it happens very, very slowly. And that can have very long term damaging effects. And I do not think whatever the announcements that have been made today, I don't think that this is a, a great moment for the European Union. And I think this war has, has shown yet further cracks in the edifice of, of what we call the European project. And just to sorry, David, just to just to add to that, um, add to what Francis is saying, that one of the main criticisms of this ban today is that the block has been moving too slowly, as Francis said. And interestingly, so so the the energy sanctions today have, have been the thing that's been most focused on, but it has come as part of a wider package of of, uh, of sanctions. And one of the other things is that more banks have been sanctioned, which, again, nodding to what Francis is saying, looks great in, in the sense that the EU is going to ban Russia's largest lender, Spurbank, from the SWIFT international payment system, um, and a, and a couple of others as well. But at the same time, that comes after, I don't know, weeks, maybe, maybe I'm not sure what the exact, the exact timing, weeks, maybe a month or so after it, it um, put sanctions on other lenders. And at the same time, these sanctions aren't, don't come with the full extent that, that, that came with other lenders. So it's not a full asset freeze, which happened to other banks. And it also hasn't targeted Gazprom Bank, which is an, a crucial for for Europe to make or, or, or other countries to make gas payments into Russia. So as much as this is, you know, new sanctions and that's great. One, it, it's come quite slowly, um, and two, it, it's not necessarily as strong as it could be. Um, sorry, just one, one, one final word on the on the ruble. I know many people will be looking, no doubt, at the exchange rates and saying, well, actually, the ruble looks very strong. Um, it's important to say that, yes, it may look strong on the surface if you're looking at it just in terms of exchanges and, and its strength on that on that metric. But what we're talking about here is the, is the long-term stability, which is measured by far more complicated algorithms and things like that. And there is where it starts to look very, very fragile indeed. And this sort of long-term decline that we're talking about by those metrics is something that I think um, will be very much playing on the mind of Vladimir Putin. So I just wanted to clarify that point for anyone who's, who's looking at their exchange rates and thinking, but the ruble looks quite strong to me. It does on that metric, but not on many others. Thank you very much, Francis. Thank you, Louise. Let's well, let's keep let's keep on economics and talk about um, the big story from yesterday, which is that Russia appears to have dodged its first foreign debt default. Um, Louise Moon, for for those of us who are not business journalists, can you unpack this a little bit? What what happened and why does it matter? Yeah, so so this happened yesterday. So so as you say, so Russia dodged its first foreign debt default in a century, um, as we've explained before. So a default is essentially bankruptcy. Um, 
in, in simplified terms. And the reason it's important is, is one, uh, well, it's essentially a, com- a country going bankrupt, but also it, it harms the country's future reputation with investors and makes it harder and more expensive for them to then tap into markets in the future. So um, what happened yesterday was that investors began to receive overdue payments on, on two bonds that initially they were due in early April. Uh, and what happened then was that Russia attempted to pay in rubles. This was blocked by the US Treasury. Um, and therefore, Russia entered a 30-day grace period um, where it wouldn't go into default, but it had to make those, par- th- those payments by the end of the- those 30 days. And that 30-day grace period was due to end today. Um, and if it hadn't paid by today, then it would be defined as defaulting. Um and investors, so all that happened. Um, so on Friday, Russia made made a U-turn essentially, and it started to use its domestic U.S. dollar stockpiles, so piles of of U.S. dollars that it has to make those payments. They started to go through the system, and investors started to, rec- to receive them yesterday. So that's, I mean, that shows. So it, it, in a sense, it's it's good for. Russia, but at the same time, because it hasn't been able to pay in rubles, it means that it's used up its domestic reserves, which it it needs to fund its war. And so actually, it's seen as quite a U-turn for Putin, who'd been demanding um, payments in in rubles. Um, So that's what's already happened. And now in terms of going forward, there are a series of kind of crunch moments, you could call them, uh, to continue to avoid a default so its next payment is due on May 27th. Um, and so that will be that will give us another indication, essentially, of how, how the economy is doing and, and if they can afford, in a sense, to, to avoid a default. Um, two days before that, so, so interestingly, so on May 25th, so the US have put in temporary measures that allow its bondholders that um, hold Russian debt to accept Russian payments. They have... They've, they've put that in place, which means that Russia can still pay it to U.S. investors. Um, that temporary measure ends on May 25th. So until then, investors can receive cash from Russia. Um, but that is technically meant to end on May 25th. So it's unclear what will happen when more payments payments are due on May 27th. Um, on that temporary measure, though, I mean it's unclear what will happen, whether that will end or whether that will be extended. And that essentially can be seen as a sanction that, that the US could implement and that it hasn't implemented yet that will that will harm the Russian economy, that will stop it being able to make uh, payments on, on its debt. Um, so that that's essentially one, one to watch. So May 25th, whether or not the US will extend that, which means that it's inve- one, its investors get money, to the US can, uh, sorry, not the US, that Russia can continue to pay on its debt um, and stem up and, and allow its economy not to default. Um, and so, yeah, whether that decision will be made, whether it will choose essentially to put another sanction in. But as it stands, Russia has avoided its first debt default, which has been closely watched, and it will continue to be closely watched in the coming weeks. So May 27th is the next payment. Um, just to say that the last time that the uh, Russian state uh, defaulted internationally was in 1917. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the Bolshevik Revolution. So a date that uh, certainly will be in Putin's mind is not one that you would want to uh, want to echo or imitate. Thanks both. Um, just to finish up our discussion on economics, I mean, we've gone really into into the weeds, I think, and into the detail, which is great. So thank you very much, Louise and Francis, for that. Could we just zoom out a bit and I mean, just pull together some of our thoughts? I mean, what at this stage in the war, what is the strength of Russia's economy? What is, how could we summarise that for, for listeners? Well, I would just um, underline what Louise was saying earlier on, that the long-term picture is that this has been economically calamitous for Russia. Whatever one may look see in the ruble numbers now, um, the long-term prospects are not good. This has been a fundamental shift 
in terms of how Russia is viewed as an economic entity from the international business community. Just think about the reputational damage now that many firms will risk if they invest in Russian companies, if they have offices in Russia, if they have shops in Russia. Remember, think back to the mass withdrawals of Western companies in the beginning of the war. Um, That has a big impact. This is all leading to a greater economic and cultural isolation for the Russian state. And in a globalised economy, that has very, very severe ramifications for your long-term prospects. Not only Putin's prospects, but also in terms of what options innovationally uh, Russia has. We've spoken in the past about another of the major consequences of this economic drain um, is many, many people, young, educated business, middle class, we would probably articulate them as though, as that. Um, people have left Russia with those businesses or as part of those companies uh, moving offices to, uh, to other European nations. And as a consequence of that, hundreds of thousands of, 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 of this, these kind of people have left. These are the innovators. These are the people that you cannot afford to lose when you are facing um, long-term isolation. Of course, during the Cold War, as I've made this point many times, so I'm, I know I keep banging this drum, but during the Cold War, it was very difficult for, for these people to, to leave. They were effectively forced to serve the state. Putin has not taken that approach. Putin has welcomed these, I suppose he would sell them as, as traitors um, and indeed has done so. He has welcomed them to leave. But this is not a wise strategy long term because uh, ultimately when you lose these people, they, they are not easy to replicate and it will have big ramifications on, on the long term durability of the economy. That said, however, and again, I know I've made this point. When you lose hundreds of thousands of perhaps West leaning bilingual sympathizers to uh to to the west it makes it also much more difficult for them to form a block that will challenge the direction of the russian state as it is under vladimir putin and it may well be that actually putin's position strange as it may seem to us is strengthened in the short term by what has happened with this brain drain and by this economic collapse um or in in in, in, in this long-term at least economic um uh, severe um, situation that, that he's faced with because ultimately um, it plays into a narrative that he's been sowing now for many, many years, which is that the West is out to get us. Um, they will do what they did in the 1990s um, at the end of the uh, Cold War, which is they will not give us the assistance we require and they, they you know, will trigger these um, deliberately try and undermine our state. And this will ultimately uh, perhaps play into his hands and into, into that narrative. So it's a very complicated thing when we're thinking about it in this long term way that you've you've described us to do. But I think it's very helpful and very important to do that because um, we should be very sensitive to to the ramifications of of a severe um, economic uh, collapse or at least um, shrinkage in in the years to come because it will impact our world and perhaps not in the ways that we might anticipate them. So, um, yes, but I'm sure Louise has got a lot to say on this. Sorry, actually, I I will just jump in just on the end. As you say... um economic ramifications so i mean russia already is predicted to go into recession i think it was um a a two-year recession it's predicted to go into and obviously as you say you can talk about all the overarching um economics of it um the oil ban the default it going into recession and it's very evident that that's where the economy will be heading unless something i mean drastic and unexpected happens that that is what's going to happen it seems to russia um, but as as France was saying, there are global ramifications of that. It's not just Russia that will be hit. It's it's the UK, it's um, Europe, it's it's America, it's, it's everywhere because it shows how intertwined the, the economy has become and how dependent we are on one another. And it's really highlighted that. And the fact that we are talking about an oil ban and the fact that the UK has already said that it will do an oil ban, even though it is it is it, we should highlight it is less reliant on on Russia for energy but it's all very intertwined it will affect the economies as it already is in in the uk and in europe um it's adding to the cost of living crisis and so yeah essentially the 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 ramifications are are global and they are long term and they are massively um massive for the for the economies essentially 
Thank you very much, Louise, and thank you, Francis. Um, just before we finish, I feel like we're just starting to run out of time. Um, can we step away from economics a bit and talk about um, Boris Johnson's street in the south of Ukraine? Uh, so this is this is in reaction to the news that uh, Boris Johnson gave an address to the Vakhovna Rada, to the Ukrainian parliament yesterday, and residents on a certain street in the south were, were celebrating. Um, Francis, tell us about this street. Why is it special? Yes, well, many listeners will be familiar with uh, this sort of tradition um, of, of, of countries naming children and naming streets after political leaders who have seen to have been supportive of that country, particularly in times of conflict. Um, I remember that Tony Blair and Bill Clinton both had a lot of children named after them for their support during the um, the Kosovo crisis and the and, and the and the Bosnian War. Indeed, I think about ten years later, Tony Blair actually met ten or twelve children who had been named after him. So it must have been rather surreal. Um, but yes, in terms of this particular um, story, um, we've got a, a dispatch in the paper today. So I'd point readers to to read it and it's quite a long piece with video as well but this is one of so there's more to, to it than what I'm just saying here um, but yes it describes this street that has been named uh, Boris Johnson Street um, in, in the town of, of Fontanka and it was a vote by the town council two weeks ago in thanks for the Britain's military support um, in the war and there's some wonderful quotes in the article about which are very revealing I think about what they think about Britain and also particularly about Boris Johnson. Um, I'll read one because I think this um, it's, it's both humorous but also quite revealing. So um, quote, Winston Churchill too was considered a freak in his day, drinking brandy and smoking cigars all day. And so is Boris Johnson. But that is why I like your prime minister. His lack of care for how he looks is the expression of a free man, just as the Western rock musicians I grew up listening to were also free in their souls. I mean, it's... Um, sort of a, a remarkable statement that I think and I think it speaks for itself really is, is that it's seeing uh, sort of in, in Boris Johnson in Britain this this sort of freedom um, as articulated um, particularly I, you'd read that kind of phrase I think in the Cold War um, and um, and it, yes it's it's sort of both humorous but also as I say I, I think rather um, rather moving in a way and um, I'm sure that um, assuming that, that the war um, uh, does end um, during Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson's premiership, which, of course, given his current challenges, is by no means guaranteed. I'm sure that we will see uh, the Prime Minister visit this uh, this street at some uh, at some uh, opportunity. It's just too good a story not to. I think. Thank you very very much, Francis. Uh, and I think that's probably our time for today. So, if either of you have any thoughts on what's coming this week, what we should be looking looking for, do 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 say now. For me, it's just that it's that May twenty seventh, May twenty fifth. Those two dates um, to see what to see what's next for Russia if it can avoid a default next. Considering this week was a significant date for that, so that's the key thing to watch on the econ side. Um, and I would just flag that there have been some rumours swirling. Um, the Independent did a piece on this, and there's been several um, academics who've waded in on on Twitter um, just about um, the how unhap- unhappy. The FSB are, this obviously being the Russian secret service, um, with the war, with Putin's handling of the war, so much so that they are said to be uh, whispers of some sort of coup and an attempt to uh, to oust him by these disaffected officers. We've spoken in the past about how um, certain very senior figures in the FSB are now under house arrest. So it would, in some senses, speak to the fears that Vladimir Putin has about some not necessarily challenges, but problems with some of these senior figures um, and sort of sending a message to the rest of the SF- FSB that, that, you know, you'll face similar if you challenge my uh, my leadership or uh, too strongly. Um, I think it's probably over-egging the pudding, having read into this. I think it's it's going a little bit too far to be saying that we can expect some um, attempting ousting of, of, of Putin. Um, but I think it's just, isn't it, it's revealing that, um, that these conversation can even be being had. Um, 
Putin expected this to be a short war. Um, he would walk in his special operation, take Kiev in the first few hours, um, and and uh, Zelensky would either be captured, killed, or would flee the country, and the resistance would collapse, and he would claim this great propagandic victory as part of perhaps a broader strategy to rebuild either the Soviet Union or or what was once the greater Tsarist Empire, um, if we're to believe his sort of strategy as, as outlined in his Ukraine essay uh, in July. Um, that has utterly, utterly failed. And now we're talking about serious threats to his leadership, as has happened, of course, many times in Russian history. It's something to be taken very seriously in that country. It just says it all. And I think it's something that to the, the, the intelligence officers in, in MI6 and, uh, and, and other equivalent, equivalent uh, organisations in Europe and in the broader Western world will be following very closely. Anton Timoshenko is a Ukrainian stand-up comic. Last week, he and his friends put on a show in a bomb shelter in Kyiv. Yeah, this is our comedy cellar in Ukraine. Uh, look like this. Like, uh, all my country in cellar now, to tell the truth. <laughs> because of bombing and rockets, all this stuff. So it's really easy to find audience for stand-up because... <laughs> You just come and people hear. <laughs> Anton usually performs in Ukrainian, but he decided to do a short set in English as well. His video went viral on Twitter. And yesterday I caught up with him. He was speaking from his apartment in the capital. My name is Anton Timoshenko. I'm a stand-up comedian and comedy writer from Ukraine. I'm 28 years old, and I didn't expect that my stand-up... Like, expand so much uh, on the world, so many retweets from the world. I have been doing for stand-up like eight years probably. Uh, in this stand-up I'm talking about why people need to be involved in politics, why it's so important, and uh, <laughs> now people understand better what I'm talking about. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about the first few weeks of the war. What, where were you? What, what happened to you? I was here in Kiev. Uh, my friend called me at 5 a.m. Yes, in the morning, and said that Russia attacks. And I go to internet to check the news because I don't believe my friends. I believe BBC, <laughs> for example. And I check that yeah, Russia attacks, full-scale invasion. And I go in shelter. I I went in shelter to my friends. Yeah, I, this is coming. This can be part of the joke that <laughs> when you understand that it's a war, like war begin in your life, I started to think what I can use to fight, what kind of weapons I had in my house, in my flat. And I was like uh, the Bruce Willis in the Pulp Fiction uh, scene, when it, this scene in this uh, shop with these rough gay guys, you know, when he tried to ch choose the weapon. He'd take like hammer. Okay, that's not too good. <laughs> uh, this is uh, for something similar for me. I took knife and thinking a knife is not okay. Maybe hammer. I'm not sure about that. And I take a knife and the uh, gas spray. That's so ironic. Uh, try to destroy Russia with a gas. Uh, <laughs> Russian soldiers with a gas. I went to shelter and uh, I live in shelter like uh, a month. Probably I lived in shelter with my friends, so I decided to help like a volunteering staff, uh, finding food, aids, and ammunition where, where what we can buy. I lived like a spider, like always in the dark, in the underground, and sometimes I go on the street to grab some food and some aids for my army. I was afraid like first two days. I was really afraid what will, will going on, but then uh, I understand that I become. Uh, part of the bravest nation in the world because you started to see this video how our army like uh, kick Russian asses and a lot of videos and you start to understand that we can fight with them and we can we will not retrieve and um, I'm so thankful for my army and for all the guys who in our army and all the girls who in our army. So tell us about the comedy in the bomb shelter how did that start? <laughs> well, we also have a nice joke about first weeks about war. This uh, joke of my colleague from stand-up, Sergei Afonsky. Uh, really nice. Do you know this app Shazam? Uh, Shazam helps to understand what kind of music. Yeah, yeah, to guess the, guess the music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said that we need a special Ukrainian Shazam app that helps to understand what kind of rocket hit your house. Like, 
by the sound. <laughs> this is Iskander, yeah, this is like flying rockets, like different types of rockets Russian had. It was not so difficult because in Ukraine, like we had a couple of uh, sellers before war where we uh, organized when we hosted our stand-up stuff. But we don't understand what time we can start. And when the Russian troops a uh, little bit retrieved from Kyiv, we decided to try did some comedy events to collect money for our army because we understand that uh, we need to collect donations and people already spent a lot of money and now to make them spend money more on army you need to do something interesting so we decided to do stand up and we we just find the deepest seller we can <laughs> this is this is not so difficult when you have a war to find a place for a comedy you just choose the deepest one and the one was not bombed so yeah this is all the <laughs> how did you find the inspiration for your jokes and how do you find the the humor in in the war oh yeah that's really easy <laughs> how to find humor on the war the humor just fall from the sky in your head like <laughs> you look uh, uh, in the sky and see oh this one uh, setup uh, setups uh, just uh, flying from the russia on your country and your punchline just your punchline probably is the just your kind of response of uh, attacking in your country like it's my weapon my punchline is my weapon so i just take russian setups like russian rockets and punchline with my attitude like first day it was difficult to joke like first weeks it was difficult to joke but then when i started uh, like uh, put some funny tweets on twitter or on facebook or instagram people start to say that uh, that's really nice and it's really helped them to go farther in this situation and i start to think well probably people need this uh, kind of jokes and funny stuff this was one of the Russian's plan. It was Putin's plan to make us uh, afraid of Russia. Like he decided to attack and take Kiev for two days because he thought we'll be like uh, afraid of all these Russian armies. But we decided to laugh in his face, and I think this is the best tactic in war. Like when you're not afraid of your opponent, when you can uh, just laugh in from his very stupid propaganda, his very rough soldiers and all this stuff so we decided to fight in way like this and it helps like when you understand that your joke is not only a joke but also is a part of like informational army like we can say we have this we have it army in ukraine we have like usual army volunteering and also like informational army who fight with propaganda all this stuff so i started thinking like that and it helps you to to move so before we talk about some of the jokes you're telling, uh, what was the reception like? Did you get lots of people coming? Is there a lot of demand for you to do it again? What is your? Do you have a tour schedule now for for the different bomb shelters in Kiev, or are you staying in the same place? Uh, <laughs> tour schedule uh, in sellers, yeah, this will be nice. No, I don't have. Uh, I have a couple of friends who already thinking about the tour, but I'm not really ready for like going somewhere from Kiev. I want to stay. I want to feel that Kiev is okay, but it's not for now. So I'm not sure. I'm gonna go somewhere. I want to be here in the heart of the situation. People were very surprised because the, they didn't expect I'll do in English something. Uh, this, my, this was my first, okay, my plan was like this. I decided to write some material in English and uh, check it for first time. Just check what kind of uh, material is good for people, what kind of bad I need to cut, what the reaction, how I, can I remember all this stuff. And it was like the first, uh, the first repetition of uh, this video. And when we filmed it, I understand that it's not so bad. Like people like it, people understand most of the jokes. If you're going to refilm it, like in a week, it takes a little time. And uh, when you live uh, in war time, you start to think that's not so important to make something perfect you need to do just something normal and not to die so i decided well i'm still alive probably i need to post this stuff as fast as i can <laughs> 
because maybe Navika will not have a, a chance to uh, host a stand-up. So I decided it's fine, just take uh, do like that, and we will see. People were very surprised. They all, a lot of people came after the show and say that they really like uh, uh, like a proud that Ukrainian comedians can speak in English. So I was, yeah, I feel really, really happy about that. Can you give us a few jokes? What's what's in your set at the moment in in English for our listeners? Uh, I rent a flat in Kiev. I rent an apartment, and so now my owner uh, said I need to pay. Like I didn't pay for the last two months because we understand why. But now she said, "Well, life is a little bit better, so probably you need to pay me a rent so like a half price. It's about three hundred dollars, and full price like six hundred dollars for a month." And uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, the Russian rocket uh, hit the house just around 900 meters from my flat. I hear this sound. And for me, this was a sound of a discount. <laughs> I hear like, okay, this sounds like minus all money. <laughs> all money <laughs> for the rent. Because when I rented this house, there was no description that this flat in the center of war and so uh, you need to give me some uh, discount stuff this is one of the new joke as i said just uh, the themes for joke just falling from the sky so you <laughs> i remember the i think it's the opening joke of your set about german weapons could you tell us that i i, I enjoyed that Oh, uh, the funniest country in Europe is Germany because when we ask for weapons germany said we don't have enough weapon to share Oh, come on, Germany. <laughs> come on. My grandmother said you have a lot of weapons. <laughs> you have a comedian president and you're a, a, a president who was a comedian and you're, you're a comedian as well. How does that, how does that make you feel? Some, somebody who does your job is, is, is leading the country. Uh, this is really funny. The most funny probably in this situation, how my moms feel about that. Because my mom, she... Uh, don't understand what I'm doing, like what stand up it means, what means comedy, right? And she just like classical mom who asked me, can you find a normal job and um, just go to office, like get some insurance, <laughs> this stuff. And I said, mom, I can make money on the jokes. And she said, why? And now I said, mom, will now you see that stand up this is a great stuff because if you're some comedian, you can be a comedian or you can just destroy other country. What can be the best? And mom said, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, he destroyed Russia. But what about the the insurance <laughs> and your president? I feel um, I need to say that when when Zelensky uh, won the election, I was a little bit nervous about that. A lot of my friends was nervous because we were not so sure that uh, this kind of guy who have no experience in politics can do some good stuff. It was nice for us because like in Ukraine we have a lot of uh, similar old politics who always in power and they, they ch change themselves like in the five years. And Zelensky become like a new blood in this ocean of politics and he just uh, delayed of a lot of people I hate, like old politicians, and it was good, but we are afraid of his non-experienced uh, person. But now, like everything changed, everything changed because Zelensky now is uh, the, the most popular leader in the world, as I know, uh, social uh, this uh, social stuff in in USA. Zelensky has more uh, people believe Zelensky more than Joe Biden, <laughs> for example. That's insane. And this is a guy who just tell jokes on TV, and now. Now he said how we need to change United Nations system, and we just wow, okay, that's, that's really nice. So, what what are your next steps then, as as a as the comedian in the bomb shelters in Kiev? It's like uh, the third month of the war, and uh, first two months we need to like we do all for help our army, like all money goes for army, nothing for us. But now, like you understand that you need to earn some money to continue to live. Uh, in this situation, so now I need to like combine in this volunteering and job stuff, and we will we will continue to do stand ups like uh, two or three shows in a week, and we will save 
captive part of money for us and part of money for army. And also I tried to get a couple of jobs in comedy writing to have a chance to uh, pay for this beautiful house near the rocket attacks. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to write new stand-up in English. I probably need to improve my language skills too. <laughs> so I download some apps on my phone with English rules. Yeah, I'm, I'm hope that you give my, uh, my contacts to Netflix or HBO, HBO better, HBO much better. And <laughs> they, if you come to Ukraine and film the special, that's HBO from the bunkers, that's gonna be nice. Yeah, my plan now, improve my language skills, uh, write new English uh, jokes, English stand-up, maybe special, not sure it's can be a special, some kind of special. And yeah, continue to destroy Russia. Yeah. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.